Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast, episode 147. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Thrillers. Mysteries. And crime. Welcome to the show. And it's always a pleasure to speak to you on the Hobcast Book Show. And we are talking to an author this week. Our guest is Jamie West. And he still had his voice. He did, yeah. Unlike uh, some of our previous no, attempts. No, as regular listeners will know, we lost uh, one, two, three guests in a row to various ailments and, and issues. And uh, we had to fill in at last minute. So we are actually getting the author we expected this week, which is a delight. And Jamie is the author of Death on the Pier, which is set in Brighton, 1933, in the theatre, on the pier itself, the pavilion... Uh, No, it was called the Palace Pier Theatre, I beg your pardon, the Pavilion Theatre was a completely different one. And indeed, Brighton used to have 20 theatres or something like that at one stage. Extraordinary. Uh, Only a few exist still now. But um, it is a uh, historic whodunit. And Jamie works in the theatre in a very specialised role, which is a sort of a modern addition to the theatre canon. He's an in charge of automation on the brilliant musical Hamilton at the moment. So he'll tell us about what that involves and what the... Pressing lots of buttons, I imagine. Yeah, programming scenery so that it moves seamlessly uh, with new technology. It's um, it's quite something, and it's a love letter to the theatre as a whole. So uh, great to speak to Jamie, and we'll talk to him a little later. Now, news-wise, let's start with some Hobeck news. We'll start with the fact we're having a sale for 10 different paperback titles is that's that right? right yeah so uh, just for one week only as a sort of pre-christmas um you should be thinking about your shopping sale um 40 off some paperback titles that we have selected carefully and you can find that on our website www.hobeck.net and uh, that's a fabulous opportunity. So we're talking about what five ninety nine something like yeah, that. Yeah, five ninety nine, and they'll be all, all orders will be gift wrapped and free postage and packaging to the UK. So go and have a look. There's some great titles on there. Absolutely right. That's our little little snippet of news. We've got more coming up later in the program. But let's talk publishing news as we regularly do, and we're going to talk about somebody who you have rubbed emails with. Yes. Yeah, so we've walked down the same corridors and we've got lots of people in common, um, but um, we've never sort of actually had a face-to-face conversation This at is all, Richard so. Charkin. Richard, let me see if I can give this potted biography. Uh, you walked, worked, walked down the same corridors at Oxford University Press. That's right. And he was a very big cheese at Bloomsbury for many years. And he is one of the 
sort of he used also i think president of one of the big book uh you know publishing sort of organizations as well at one stage and he has just completed his 51st visit to the frankfurt frankfurt book mess that's that's incredible isn't it it is absolutely amazing so you know this guy knows his publishing and he sent up set up mensch publishing in 2018 so roughly sometime oh, as we just were before think- then, yeah, yeah. When we were thinking about setting up Hobeck, he set it up as a one-man band using all of that traditional industry experience to create his own publishing house. And uh, what did Mensch do? I mean, what's their their area? Um, as far as I'm aware, it's both fiction and non-fiction, um, but all, all sorts of things. But quite interesting subjects and titles. Um, I, I've got one of their books on my wish list. I have to confess, so I, I. I admire them admire him for what he's done and... yeah um and the thing that he's doing um is a change in the way that he's going to produce physical copies of mensch publishing books and that is by moving exclusively to ingram content group uh, ingram spark is what we use and he's going print on demand now that is a big departure for a publisher that would principally sell his books into stores around the world because traditionally you would do a print run it would go into distribution through gardeners in the uk for instance and it would sit in a warehouse waiting to be picked up you know orders to come in from bookshops but instead he's going down the print on demand route and what is his principal thinking behind that what is, has he said anything about well this decision i think um it, it's, it's about efficiency isn't it but more than efficiency it's about environmental sustainability because if you think about it if you print a number of books um and you store them in a warehouse and if you're you print based in the uk because um, the the big five will have the ability to print all over the world but smaller presses won't have that ability right chances are they'll print in the uk and export books to other countries if they get those orders um of course there's a big environmental cost with that and with storage of the books and with um, having the risk of copies that don't sell. Yeah. The beauty of print on demand, what he's saying is it's instant. And also the beauty of working with Ingram, a company like Ingram Spark, Ingram Spark have got um, bases all over the world, um, principally in the UK and the US. Um, they have the ability to print very close to the location of the customer. Exactly. So if you think what that does to uh, your carbon footprint, if that is the only way you are operating, that's quite big, actually. It's quite significant. Yeah. I, I, my questions here are, you know, I can see the principle of, of it. And indeed, some of the UK uh, printers are, are moving that way as well with partnerships with other printing firms around the world. Yeah. As we found out from CPI when we went to see them in Wiltshire a few months ago. Um, But the biggest thing that no one really understands, I think, in publishing in terms of, you know, know, people's understanding of how it works, is that there is this big warehousing cost. So you do your print run, and for every book that we've done through a print run, we are paying rental space for the unsold copies sitting in a warehouse on a monthly basis. So that is just an ongoing rolling cost that reduces your margin and indeed makes whatever sales you get. If you don't sell them quickly and they're sitting there um, in a warehouse, you're just losing money. Yeah, it's a simple thing. Yeah. And you can't predict what that's going to be. You know, no, that's the thing. That's another thing he's saying is it's really difficult to predict 
um, how many are you going to sell? You know, you may have an idea, but you might get it wrong and it is easy to get wrong. But with print on demand, all the anxiety of that is is gone completely because yeah. what is demanded is printed and it's so efficiencies as well. And, and like you say, savings, although the, the cost per copy of printing using print on demand technology is higher. Yes. But actually... But if you're not warehousing... If you look not... at the bigger picture, yeah. yeah. If you look at the bigger picture, then um, there are it, 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 there is a benefit to it. And um, traditionally, print-on-demand was seen as a lower quality of product. But that is shrinking. The gap between um, particularly Ingram, the quality of Ingram copies, and BookVault is another company who um, uses sort of technology is shrinking and book vault uh, they can cope now with special editions you can all sorts of fancy things that you can do with right. books yeah in terms of cover design and embossing and foils and uh, sprayed edges and all that sort of thing it, it, you know that that is what uh, traditional printers can offer mm. and has that has been a point of difference but if that you know is no longer technologically you know uh, if that's within reach of ingram that does change the dynamic to, to a, a huge degree. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now, you heard him on a podcast, this is Richard Charkin again, uh, talking about cover prices because the UK is an outlier in terms of the price of physical copies. It's much, much lower than it is around the world and very, very limited margins, if indeed any, on physical copies because traditionally – uh, influences like the supermarkets, like the big retailers, have forced prices, cover prices, to be kept for paperbacks around, well, under the £10 mark. I mean, it used to be sort of seven ninety nine was a standard. Mm. And if it was in the supermarkets, it was less than a fiver. And because of rising costs, it is no reflection on the actual costs of producing the product. And the margins are too small. Whereas in, the, in anywhere else in the world... Those book prices are much, much more in line, giving publishers a de- and indeed authors a decent margin. So, what was he saying? Um, he is basically saying he was basically saying that you know price people put far too much emphasis on price of books as a, a deciding factor whether to purchase or not. And I agree with him actually. I'm not talking about ebooks. I think the ebook market and the ebook reader is a completely different person to the paperback and hardback reader, the person who goes into the bookshops looking for books. Um, I know that I personally, and it's not because I've got loads of money to spend, not at all, but I don't particularly consider the price when I'm making a decision. If I want a book, I see a book and I think, oh gosh, that looks fantastic. It looks like my sort of book. I often don't even look at the price because I know it's not going to be more than sixteen ninety nine if it's a hardback generally, and it's not going to be more than twelve thirteen ninety nine as a paperback. You can sort of make a guess on how much it might be. I often do take it to the till before mm. I find out. I think that's going to shift. I think that is going to have to shift because of the the printing costs have gone up so monumentally. Mm. In the last eighteen months, I mean, officially it's fifty percent, but actually in re- real terms, it's it's higher than that, um, and it doesn't show many signs of softening. But it is it is difficult. We keep seeing our prices rise every time we ask for a quote for a print run. It's just <laughs> put another hundred and fifty quid on it from the last time we ordered. 
Yes. And that, that's how it feels. And it, it, it is. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think he is a visionary on that. Front. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, he's, he, he makes decisions. He's a decision maker. He mm. doesn't, um, yeah. at all. So I think, I think there's something to, for us to cogitate on, mm. to be honest. Now, another area where things are on being squeezed is in the publicity and marketing side of things, particularly the publicity uh, specifically. And what we're talking about here is that there are plenty of people in the industry whose job it is to get book titles featured within other media outlets, particularly newspapers and magazines. And the UK publicity sector is complaining that it is getting increasingly hard because the number of outlets is going down and indeed the ones that still exist are printing fewer pages yes so there's there's just less room it's well known isn't it that the magazines and newspapers as physical entities um there are fewer of them around and like you say they're they're cutting down on the number of pages that they just have to make cuts and something like um book reviews is an obvious choice of cutting isn't it so yeah so publicists are saying that competition is tougher than ever for small spaces with magazines and journals often hard hit jess gulliver who's associate director of premier comms said that since 2021 review coverage has shrunk even more there is less space than previously and more books being published and with uh, more novels being proofed and sent out earlier and earlier one industry pub uh one industry public uh, publicists are having to be sorry she says our i've got the wrong <laughs> word it's we've got very low lighting in here today and I, i'm really struggling at some some fake printing our industry publicists are having to be more and more um, creative, including sending books out a year before publication. And I, ha- I heard that on a- another podcast I listened to, the Publishing Radio. They were talking about yeah, proof copies being sent out a year in advance. Now that just seems like such a long wait. Um, it, I just, we, we certainly would never do that. Or, well, we can't because we don't give anything like the lead time for that. <laughs> and there's no way any of our authors are going to be prepared to sit there waiting a year for publication. Look, traditional publishers, this is something... I, I was talking to somebody who I was on a course with and um, she's just had her first children's book published and, you know, congratulations to her. But she's been on their books for three years waiting for it to be published. And that's just mental in my book because the whole point of where technology is taking us is that you can get books out so much quicker. But so many aspects of the industry, that's retailers, festivals, mm. and indeed uh, the newspapers that still feature books, um, book reviews, they all want tons and tons of lead time. But we managed to get one of our books reviewed this <laughs> in, the, in the Morning Star, so a national newspaper albeit probably the smallest circulation national newspaper. I still did a happy dance around the kitchen. Oh, yeah, totally, because, um, you know, Chasing the Dragon was featured in it by Mark Whiteman. And um, that's great, and it was a great review. So, you know, but it was only, you know, a few words. Yeah, it was a a couple of paragraphs, and I'd sent out proof copies to... um, as many newspapers as I as I could, and I tried to be creative in my covering letter, all sorts of things. Yeah. I wrapped them in nice paper and everything, you know. I'm <laughs> and apparently, apparently, one of the one of the issues at the moment is because most reviewers are now working from home. 
Uh, people are sending books to the offices, so they don't actually get in their hands. And when people have found the home address of said reviewer, reviewers are going mental because they're saying, how dare you know my address and how dare you send the proof copies here? You know, and so that's breaking down the system. It's yet tricky. Further. Yeah, I had the same problem. Um, I did have some of the home addresses. And this is only because um, we uh, launched a book sort of the end of the pandemic. And a lot of these people were working from home at the time. And we had a publicist. So, you know, we, we, were, we were able to use their home addresses. Uh, we hired, well, we hired a publicist. Yes, this is uh, for Genesis. Inquiry, yeah, yeah, so um, when I came to be doing it for the Chasing the Dragon, I had both the office and the home addresses, some people, and I thought, I don't know what to do. Mm. <laughs> for that reason, I sent it to the office and it just gets lost or um, if they're yeah. working from home, like you say. Um, it is really, really tricky. And to try and be creative, to try and make it stand out from all the others that they get, it's very difficult. Well, it's, you know, we were watching, we've been watching as a sort of uh, before bed experience off YouTube, uh, the story of Top of the Pops for each year. They did this series a few years ago now. And there's quite a lot of um, contributions from record pluggers. And you asked me, what, what's a plugger? And I said, well, the people who used to go around to record stores and to particularly radio stations and try and get airplay or for shops to stock the records that they represented and the bands and the the labels they represented. And they used to take all sorts of weird things, you know, they, free gifts and all sorts of stunts to try and get some uh, some coverage. So it's actually no different at all. No, but, I mean, you know, in those days, there was a circuit that you could do around London record stores <laughs> and around radio stations, etc., um, that could bear fruit. Or you'd have regional representatives doing the same thing you know, in the major metropolitan markets. That isn't the case. You can't do that with books because Waterstones only see certain people for 45 minutes every six months. Um, you, you can't just go and do that anymore. And indeed, when we've had authors, you know, use work some shoe leather and go and into stores and ask their local bookshops to stock their books, some have said yes and many have said no. In fact, you know, no and you know two fingers it's it's it, it it doesn't work like that anymore no and it's so hard so i do have some sympathy for the publicists because it's a shrinking world that they've been dealing with and ever more selective so you know again it's a challenge another challenge in the world of publishing <laughs> okay let's talk to somebody who took on the challenge of writing his first novel during lockdown jamie west now you'll remember that the whole entertainment industry, live entertainment industry, just shut down during the lockdown. So like so many aspects of our lives. And he was furloughed from his theatre roles and kept going um, during that period through furlough money. And so was able to keep going and wrote his first novel, took that opportunity to use that window, like so many people did, to write a book. And Death on the Pier was the product. And it is set in 1933. Uh, he has, Jamie has used his knowledge of the theatre, but also in, in immaculate and deep research mm. into the uh, Palace Pier Theatre that used to be on the Palace Pier, which is the only open pier in Brighton. There, there were two. The West Pier is just that bit of tangled metal that sits out at sea nowadays. 
And um, the theatre itself was taken away in, in the, uh, I think it was the 80s, and um, and never seen again. But certain aspects of it still survive Apparently in a museum. Apparently so, yes, as we will find out. And uh, so that's been part of his research, but um, it's, it's something of a love letter to Agatha Christie. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a great book. It's my bedside reading at the moment, so I can vouch for... And a love letter to the theatre. Let's yeah. talk to the wonderful Jamie West. Well, it's a lovely pleasure to speak to Jamie West, author of Death on the Pier, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited to uh, have a nice little chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing to do on a Friday morning. It is, it is. (laughs) We've really been looking forward to this, and um, you very kindly sent us a copy of the book. Which I'm showing, although nobody can see it because it's audio only, but I'm showing it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Looks very good. And tell us about the genesis of this, because... I read in um, in one of your blogs. I mean, the, the and your your biog is that it was actually the pandemic that was the opportunity, the window of opportunity that gave you the chance to write this. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Because it's not it's not really a unique story because so many people seem to the you know the pandemic was an awful thing, but there's so many authors I see and hear um, on podcasts and things that say it was a great time to sort of stop and it gave you the chance to write the book that you've always wanted to do. And a lot of new authors have come out of that time. So it is nice that something great's come out of that, you know, terrible time. And it was the same for me, this kind of idea had been knocking around in the back of my head for a long time. Um, And it finally sort of clicked just at the perfect time to start writing it down basically. So um yeah I just got on with it it was great but it's funny because the idea didn't come from the world of theatre originally it came Mm. from um the I remember I must have been in Brighton at some point don't know why um but I was wandering up and down that pier and I thought well wouldn't a pier be a great place to set a murder mystery you know that kind of classic closed off location and I've read a lot of murder mystery books in the last few years set on isolated islands I was like let's do something else um so that's where it kind of came from and then I started looking into the history of the pier like I do and discovered that there used to be a theatre on it and then that from that point onwards everything clicked into place because you're always kind of searching for what you can bring to a book aren't you you know the book that only you can write and as soon as the idea of the theatre, like a murder mystery playwright sprung into my head. From that point onwards, everything, you know, the murder and the mechanics, everything all just kind of fell into place from that point onwards. And then came the pandemic and it was the perfect time to, you know, get it all down on paper. Absolutely. And we're talking about the pier we're talking about, formerly known as the Palace Pier, and then the noble organisation who own it, and they've owned it since the 80s, turned it to Brighton Pier. Now, I, I happen to be the reporter for the BBC in Brighton at that time and the horror amongst people that it had become Brighton Pier rather than the Palace Pier because it was to distinguish it, of course, from the West Pier, which Mm. is very little left of it sticking out at sea now, but at that time was going to be restored and that was the hope. So there was this huge controversy and that pier is emblematic of the whole of Brighton I think in in so many ways it has all of its good sides and all of its bad sides all in one stretch (laughs) of um, 85 miles of planking I think I read somewhere um, (laughs) that that, that holds it all together it's an extraordinary place so um, 
how does it feel when you go there and you you sort of see what was you know would have been the theater building it's now an arcade isn't it yeah it's funny i mean it's down to i know the locals still you know determinedly call it the palace pier theater whenever they can so you know if someone's you know a true brighton local i think um and yeah it's kind of down to the noble organization i think that the pier kind of got lost the theater sorry got lost in the first place because they had to do some work um, to the pier to make it more secure which meant they kind of demolished the theatre took it away and they were going to put it back but it sort of no one knows for sure it feels like accidentally on purpose got lost so they didn't have to put it back so the arcade there they sort of built in a similar kind of style in reference to that original building um, but I thought actually the original building had been completely lost until um, earlier I think it was earlier this year or maybe the end of last year I got an email from the Theatre Trust, um, who I follow quite closely. And they, in that email, they said, oh, the Brighton Museum is um, getting rid of some some of their exhibits that they don't need anymore, they can't use. And they had all this plaster work and some seats from the Palace Pier Theatre, which I thought had been completely lost. So all the plaster work that I described in the book and was trying to imagine from black and white pictures was here in color it was fantastic to see so you know it's um there's still mysteries in like held in store for this theater and for brighton it's all you know who knows what else they might find yeah i mean one thing i was going to say is you evoke the, the atmosphere of the theater really well and i was going to ask you how did you imagine it so well and and i think you sort of more or less answered that that you had you were able to see um actual relics from that from the theatre itself so yeah luckily because you know I've worked in theatre a long time I have to do we do a lot of stuff with plans and things when we're building scenery and we're getting shows on so I'm quite used to kind of looking at plans and imagining what that's going to be like in 3D which turns out is a bit of a skill not it turns out not everyone can kind of do that has that visual kind of memory to be able to see things um so that's kind of a skill that I've kind of picked up from my normal day job but I went to the keep in Brighton which is the local archives and they've got loads of plans of um, the Palace Pier Theatre in several incarnations um, and they've also got a few black and white pictures and things there so it was great I went, I went there three or four times to get all this information out of them and one time I went and I wasn't actually booked in <laughs> They were like, uh, you're supposed to be here today. I was like, oh, I've <laughs> driven two hours down the road. And they were like, uh, yeah, you're supposed to be here next week. I was like, but oh, they no. very, they very, um, they were very nice and refunded my car parking. So that was nice of them. Oh, um, that's great. But yeah, it was just, it was a thrill to kind of go through and dig through. I felt like a proper, you know, I'm not a historian by any stretch, but I felt, you know, like a proper historian going into some archives, digging around. It was, yeah, it was really fun to do. It's interesting you say that you're not a historian, but I think any writer of historic fiction is a historian in a way, but it's more more of a cultural history that you're researching, isn't it? Rather than a sort of, you know, the political or the factual history. But I think I think you are still a historian of sorts. <laughs> the thing is you can't, especially in the theatre, because a lot of it isn't written down. You sort of pick it up. A lot of the things, a lot of the little details that go into the book about some of the technology um, are all things you kind of pick up as you go along and I remember years back poking around at the London Palladium which was my first job 
Um, there was a house that's kind of connected to it where they used to have all these old offices and the building was condemned. I don't think we were supposed to go in there, but they had all these gorgeous, you know, doors with hand painted signs that said carpentry, wardrobe in it. And in there, there'd be all these random bits of old equipment, these old sound desks. And you just thought of, you know, these buildings have so much, obviously the buildings themselves are historic, but the people that have gone through them and the shows that have gone through them all leave kind of marks, leave scars, and you can just go into a theatre and kind of poke around them. And it still happens today. You know, there's still, for shows, you have to demolish a bit of wall or knock something out or we've accidentally hit a bit of scenery against here. That mark's going to be there now forevermore. Um, it's, we're still making history as we go on and the history mm. of plays and theatres. It's an ever-evolving thing. And it's pretty much, again, apart from COVID, for goodness sake, um, it's been a continuous history of these buildings they've a lot of them have been working you know for the entire since they were built in 1910 or whenever yeah no they are extraordinary aren't they yeah like leaving traces of every single play that's ever been performed yeah i think that's right i think you get a there's a there's an energy and an atmosphere within these buildings um that you know if you're fortunate enough to feel it um that sort of vibe if that's the right word um it's a it's a great it's very seductive. Is that, is that, I mean, when you first ventured into the theatre, um, I think you were 15, weren't you, when you were first invited to to start working in theatre in, um, in Essex? Or um, You've done your research. I have done a little, done a little <laughs> bit of... Um, Fantastic. Um, 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 a little bit of research, but then... <laughs> but this is my training coming out, where <laughs> I was always sent on stories, and you had about three things to cling on to, and you drop them in to make yourself look and feel more authoritative. What's his, his favourite vegetable then? <laughs> Absolutely no idea. I've got a favourite vegetable. Um, <laughs> anyway, I mean, you know, but the, but it is that thing, isn't it? I mean, did that, in, in you, you know, when you were younger, did, was that what s- seduced you into the theatre or was it the, the, the technical side because you were doing the lighting or something for a for production? Yeah, exactly. When I was, I think I was, yeah, 14 or 15, um, a friend of the family who was involved in amateur dramatics and they knew I was kind of, there must have been something technical. I feel there's like, you know, there's not a switch that I didn't like to press. I remember when I was really young, people would call up my parents after we'd be in the house and they're like, oh, the, you know, the central heating's not working anymore. Has Jamie pressed something? And they probably would have done. <laughs> Love so that. Uh, there was always like, there was always some kind of technical something going on there. And they, you know, he must have recognised that. And he was like, oh, do you want to come along? We need someone to do the lights for the show. I was like, yeah. And it was really it was really funny. It was just, you know, a kind of like church hall um, kind of vibe of a stage at the end. And then obviously you have to put out, put out the chairs for an audience. Um, But it was great to go in and do that kind of stuff. And then the second play that I was involved in was Agatha Christie's The Spider's Web, which is still my favourite Agatha Christie play by far. I think it's, you know, it's so entertaining. It's brilliant. I could go on about it all day. It's, um, it's so good. So I kind of, you know, it's quite convenient. I keep saying Agatha Christie, I think doing that play is what really got me into theatre. And then, you know, 15, 16 years later, it's kind of Agatha Christie and murder mystery vibes all over again, inspiring me for a second time to try out this kind of second sideline career as well. So well done, Agatha Christie, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt that inspiration in the book, you know, it's 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 got that sort of uh, balance of gritty characters but uh, lovable characters as well and 
and there's so there's a lot of things that have snuck kind of going back and rereading it um there's a lot of things that have snuck in there um that i didn't really realize and it's things like the wind machine is from the mousetrap they famously use and they've used the same wind machine on the mousetrap forever they're all physical sound effects that all came from that and i didn't kind of realize that that had snuck its way in there till i reread it yeah and the set of the play that's in the book um the set design is very very similar i mean almost identical to the set of spider's web which again i didn't really realize until i went back and read it so all of these things all these influences that you kind of just absorb over time they all they all come out don't they when you mm, absolutely yeah that's interesting though you only noticed it when you reread it so yeah it's obviously it's all these things locked away in the back of my brain there they all kind of sneak out don't they as soon as you start writing what about the, the building of the world then of, of 1930s brighton um what I mean, you you obviously got the records of how the theatre was set up and the technology that was available. You've seen the seats, you've seen the the decor uh, in in person. But but what about creating that society and the uh, and the the cast of characters and how they would operate? That must have been more challenging. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's lots of they're not kind of stereotype characters in the theatre. I wouldn't say, but there's a lot of you know, similar type of people you come across in theatres, especially um, the old hand that's been around for a while <laughs> and has got a bit bitter to everything. But they're always they're still quite jovial, really. Um, you often see those people around. Um, so it was fun to sort of borrow from that type of person and then that kind of strong, domineering, leading lady as well. You know, I don't want to name any names, but there's been a few of those that I've come across in my career as well and it's not i'm not taking any one person and putting them in the book obviously um but there's so many brilliant traits that come across from people and also because you know we are in a theater people are a bit more theatrical so it allows you to be a bit bigger with them and give them a bit more personality than you would perhaps you know if you're writing a murder mystery about an accountant, you might not be able to do it with the same kind of flair, would you? So, so that was really fun to do. Yeah, it's funny um, you say that because one of our um, advanced readers is an accountant, and he's actually a very good writer. And I said to him, "You need to be the first person to write a murder mystery in an accountancy firm." One hundred percent. It's all about the numbers, isn't it? <laughs> but um, it, it was it was fun, and there's also a bit of a tension that you have to do with kind of writing the historical side of it. Cause obviously I've got, you know, queer or gay characters in the book and in the 1930s, that landscape was hugely different to what it is now. It's kind of weird. Like the word queerness is kind of having its full circle moment because in the 1930s, it did mean, you know, out of the ordinary, not um, fitting into your gender stereotype. And that's what it's coming back around to mean today. Obviously, there was a bit, you know, in the middles and the 80s and 90s where I was growing up, it was a bit of a slur. It wasn't the best word, but, you know, it's brilliant. It's being reclaimed. And yeah, it's we're kind of back to where we were in the 1930s in a way. Um, and recreating that in the book, it's like I said, there's a bit of a tension because I can't do it exactly like it was in the 1930s because some of it wouldn't work for a modern audience. You wouldn't kind of buy it so it's been a fine little balance to 
to look at what was historically right. And the same is true of the theatre and Brighton itself, you know, looking at what would have been historically right, but then writing what is believable for a modern day reader, which sounds a bit, you know, it's not necessarily about the facts. <laughs> mm, no, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, that intrigues me because, I mean, you know, as Brighton reporter, clearly, uh, this was back in the 90s, uh, we're talking about, you know, Brighton and Hove, two separate towns at the time, were the beacon for um, the gay community in the UK. Uh, by far the biggest, you know, outside London, biggest community uh, of, um, you know, the gay people, you know, 10% of the population of the area, um, you know, were, were gay. And and at that, that, that time, I'm, I, I dare say it's more now, but it it was a very, very much an outlier, I think, compared to the rest of the country in in the way that, it was woven into the fabric of of the society, but I wonder whether in the 1930s, because you know Brighton had this sort of certain reputation, I suppose, within um, wider society of being a place where you took your mistress, um, and had been since its Regency period. Uh, but w- w- do you know was it was there much evidence of of um, you know a gay community or uh, a different? Um, environment for gay people in the 1930s in Brighton or was it was it like the rest of the country you know coppers waiting to pounce and <laughs> nab people well, <laughs> well it's funny is because it? I feel like that is that is kind of like um I, nowadays that's our modern idea of the period um but it was still I do think that gay men in the 1930s it was still very much underground especially you know if you weren't that kind of effeminate gay which is what you know again to kind of look at the slang of the era as things like fairy and all that kind of stuff it was mm-hmm. much more about the effeminate man when you get to the slang you know of my youth perhaps it was a lot more about who you were sleeping with as opposed to just that kind of a femininity i guess yeah um, so if if you weren't like that you very much could kind of stay kind of under the radar a little bit i think um but i did the old chip hotel did Mm. i wasn't able to find any second source to confirm this so it never really went in the book but i did find a source. um it was like in a book about gay culture it was just this little line about the old chip hotel and they said it had a quote-unquote like gay wing i don't know how true that was but um, they kind of suggested that you know the doors weren't necessarily locked during the night and you know perhaps there might have been a little bit of room hopping going on which was had a blind eye very much turned to it um but i was never able to find any second source to kind of confirm that but it doesn't you know doesn't surprise me really no, no that's fascinating i think that, that should be your homework <laughs> find, <laughs> find more sources because i tried i tried <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know the old ship. Yeah, that's I know it well. Yeah, you know it, don't you? Yeah, so, yeah I know of it, but I well, don't Well, I mean, know that's it. where Donna had her uh, yes. uh, event last week. So, uh, our, our, last, our last week's guest um, held her, her murder. There's like mm. a sort of crime festival in. Yeah, in, in, yeah in, I saw, I'd saw that ship. going on. Yeah, I'd have loved to have gone down to it. I saw that all going on um, yeah. on Instagram and stuff. I was like, oh, that looks great, doesn't it? And also, you know, for me, I'd love a chance to properly poke around the old ship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah you might a... find some more evidence somehow. I yeah, don't know, you never so. know. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has a certain ambience and, and feel. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't, hasn't much changed, really. Yeah, because Donna was moaning about it being a bit run down. And I thought, well, I like run down hotels. No, I love so that. I find yeah. them fascinating. Mm. 
No, yeah. I love that. I love a bit of, you know, faded grandeur is mm. when you go into, you know, some old places and you can sort of, I find it almost in, more exciting to kind of imagine what's under all that dust and grime and what it mm. would have been like. Mm. Um, you know, obviously there's been some fantastic theatre restorations recently. I mean, where I work now, Victoria Palace has just had a restoration and it looks absolutely gorgeous in there. Um, but part of me is like, oh, I could still quite like going into the old theatres that haven't been done yet and kind of imagining they've got a bit more, again, they've got a bit more history on the walls. There's still a bit of nicotine there, a bit of dust. They're mm. all a bit sticky. They're kind of keeping hold of everything. So, um, yeah, I know sometimes, yeah, I don't know if I want to go in a shiny theatre or a grimy theatre, really. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I do like the that you can see evidence of its history. Like you say, it's almost like the walls look like they would be sticky if you... Which, yeah, which, which um, you know, leads me to, to ask um, about the, the future of the theatre, because obviously, you know, this book was written in a period where you were furloughed out and, and you know, many, many of your colleagues, in fact, your whole industry was wondering whether you were ever going to get back on stage. And of course, one of our writers is a, is a, is a, 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 a noted actor in Robert Dawes. And, you know, he was basically furloughed out of uh, out of work for, for months and months and months during this period. Um, but what about the future of the, of the theatre itself? Because, you know, with the passing of Bill Kenwright last week and um, a sort of generation of empresarios that have put so much money into restoring West End theatres, particularly in Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh, who are the next generation coming through who are going to do that sort of thing? Is that, you know, those, those sort of theatre empresario figures, uh, is there another generation coming through? I don't know. I think it's going to be, I'm really excited to see what happens. I kind of refer to um, the gold, the second golden age of theatre in the UK kind of ran from the 19, middle of the 1980s, right up until COVID when we we're a bit like, oh, what's going to happen now? Because it was a golden age, really. In the 1980s, a lot of these theatres, you know, the Lyceum was a dance hall, the Dominion was a cinema, um, there were plans in the 70s and 80s to demolish, I think, four or five of these theatres as part of the regeneration of Covent Garden, there around Covent Garden. You know, theatre was kind of on its knees and suddenly we had the mega musicals in the 1980s to compete with those kind of blockbuster films. And that's what got theatres, audiences coming back to theatres in their droves. You know, Cameron Mackintosh, I think, got one of his big breaks was the Arts Council giving him money to put on shows because there are all these brilliant touring venues around the UK, which were empty. And at the time, um, they kind of recognised the best way to keep these theatres opening and running was to get shows in them. So there was a bit of funding for him. And that's where I think My Fair Lady, um, Oklahoma, shows that, you know, they were still doing until the 90s. Um, with Cameron Mackintosh, I think, you know, they get revived every now and then still. Um, so from the 1980s until now, audiences have grown every year in the West End, every year that I've been working in it, audiences have got bigger and bigger. And it's not just about the money. It's about, uh, there's been more bums on seats. So it is growing. Um, so yeah, it's intriguing to see where it's going to go next. Cause I think when COVID hit, we were very, very worried that how are we going to recover from this? But from where I'm sitting and from the people I see, it feels like we're already back. You know, that kind of 
supply chain of shows waiting to get into theatre. There used to be like three or four years um, of waiting list to get into a West End theatre, you know, and it's kind of getting back to that point. The shows um, are stacking up again. But what was a shame is you often don't think about the wider community. When you go and see a show, you see the people on the stage. Um, you know, there's probably some people backstage helping out there, although there's often more than you think. Mm. Um, but beyond that, there's a whole community of um, carpet, carpentry firms that build the scenery and engineers that build all the mechanical elements and scenic painters and costume makers and all these things. And we did lose, like, some engineering firms did go, um, and they don't exist anymore. Some carpentry firms, some really great scenery companies, um, they disappeared and we haven't got them back. So there is a bit of, not a vacuum, but there is a bit of a gap there that still needs to grow to help support the shows again. You know, there's a lot of, you know, a bit of, gossip there were behind the scenes some shows coming together are just coming together at the last minute because that kind of supply chain getting um stuff in getting raw materials in is still incredibly difficult and actually finding people to be able to build the scenery for your show is incredibly tough because like i said that that part of things has shrunk a little bit so it's it's still it's a bit of an uncertain time but again like on hamilton ticket prices are you know good solid there's big audiences coming in and the same is true across the west end you know people are actually paying across the west end people are paying more now for theater than they ever have and seem to be completely happy with that so from a business perspective from the audience from the money coming in it seems to be in quite a healthy place to be fair as far as i can see anyway that's really encouraging, actually. It's good. <laughs> it is. I mean, I'm not sure it's it's repeated across the country, though. I mean, we, you were talking about the theatres at risk that um, the Theatre Trust are, are, are trying to save. And I looked down the list, and uh, and Brighton features very heavily. Um, there's four or five sites there that are still potentially salvageable, I think. Um, but I couldn't believe just how many theatres Brighton had. I mean, it's almost a mini West End in itself. It must have been <laughs> well, it was, at, well, at its height, 20 theatres. Yeah, I mean, in in the 1930s, in that in the past, like Brighton has had the biggest concentration of theatres anywhere outside of London. Um, and also because, it's, you know, people like Laurence Olivier used to live there. It had a huge theatrical community. So it kind of, you know, it makes sense it did have a lot of theatres there. But I mean, it's the amount of theatres that have been lost in the country is that there used to be you know thousands or more theatres and I think at last count nearly since you know 1910 1915 when there were all these theatres and that was kind of a bit of the boom of building although there was a bit more in the 1930s again like 85 to 90 percent of those have been lost um and it's it's really sad to see but it's we're always looking for you know the silver bullet to regenerate the high street, to get people coming back into town centres. And theatres, entertainment, is one of those huge things that does do that. It gets people, you know, 2,000 people a night into a theatre. It gets the local restaurants, the local businesses boosting those, you know. And, you know, it's it always saddens me to see, you know, when the government is saying, oh, the arts isn't important. It's one of our hugest industries. It's our biggest export industry, you know. 
Olympic Games, big opening ceremonies, European tours, like, you know, all these pop concerts, a lot of those get built, originated in the UK because we have the best entertainment engineers anywhere in the world in this country. Um, so it's, you know, it's such a shame not to see that being boosted more by, you know, the government and people. But like I said, we're looking for a silver bullet for the high street, live entertainment is it i think you know mm. yeah well, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm biased, if you want but... to go for prime minister yeah well that that and a that and uh you know just before you go to the theater you go to your independent bookshop on your high street and, well exactly um, yes yeah. but jamie's book would of course be in stock because it's absolutely theatrical. totally totally <laughs> now i mean your your sphere we've been sort of skirting around it in terms of your experience in the theater and you started with the you know running a lighting rig in, in an amateur production but Specifically, you're into automation, and that is an area that kind of fascinates me because I remember as a young kid, I was taken around on a school trip to the National Theatre, and this would have been, I guess, in the early 80s. And there was this very famous contraption in the middle of the Olivier Theatre, which never seemed to work. It does now, but there was this huge, um, I don't know what it's described as, but, you know, a huge device that would go up and move the set up and down on a spiral kind of system, but they could never get it working. Um, it does, as I say, it does now, but that's, that was my first exposure to the sort of machinery involved of theatre. And it must've come a long way even since then, <laughs> I guess. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is like the drum revolve at the national was yeah. so far ahead of its time. It didn't, it was almost ahead of the technology to make it work. Um, and it was an, it's a hugely impressive piece of engineering. And actually the tradition of British theatre engineering goes way back to those Victorian melodramas, you know, with mm. treadmills and horses and all that kind of stuff. Um, and huge lifts at Drury Lane, which I was lucky enough to see working before they got um, taken out um, just before Frozen went in there. Um, but Automation is, it kind of came around on shows in the 1980s. Again, these mega musicals were fueled by what was the precursor to automation because it wasn't actually automatic at this point. It was, you know, it was still motorized scenery. And actually, a lot of it was hydraulics because we didn't have electric motors at that point in time still good enough and small enough to move lots of scenery in the theater that only came along in the 90s. So it's a real, you know, new field um, of of theatre that people don't I don't think you really think about it because you either assume it's always been that way because when you go and see a show you see stuff you've always seen things moving around you're like oh it's, you know it's probably electric you wouldn't you wouldn't even cross your mind that there's someone backstage pulling on a rope to make that go up and down because you know it's so smooth and lovely but you know it was up until very recently whereas now even small plays get highly automated um, and it helps with things like video and projection and stuff because those all join together now um, to make really immersive, interesting shows. So the idea that the video follows the scenery, if you're in control exactly of how the scenery is moving using a motor, then you can create, you know, absolute magic. It's, fa it's fantastic. But yeah, it's such a new feel that kind of, like I said, began with those mega musicals, but only really developed in the 90s. Um, and even now, you know, it's it's really got to its peak, you know, on all these big shows like Moulin Rouge. My husband went to see that yesterday. He's like, it's fantastic. Everything moves. It's brilliant. It allows you to 
create these huge spectacles and these brilliant scene changes, which you couldn't really do without a lot and lot of rehearsal, a lot of practice, which you could do. But then, you know, a flyman goes on holiday and then the whole thing falls apart. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting field. And I kind of stumbled into it, really, after drama school. Someone was like, oh, you'd be interested in doing this. I was like, well, that does sound interesting. And the interview went along the lines of, oh, have you ever done automation before? I was like, no, they're like, brilliant, you've got the job because there are so few people around that do it. And even now it's a very specialized, there's not a lot of people around that have a lot of experience doing it. So it's, um, it's a real fun part of theater and you get to move huge bits of scenery. It's, um, it's, you know, very, it's very exciting to do. That's amazing. Um, where does AI come? Because there's an obsession of ours in the publishing. I had to bring it up. Ours, yours. Mine. Okay. We talk about it every week. What's AI doing to publishing? But what's it doing in the theatre? I mean, it, you know, it, it, does it is it a tool for helping you to design, you know, engineering pieces and 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 the the mechanisms? Well, it can't or, act yet. No, but or, or do you do you perhaps in a position to perhaps delegate some of this stuff to to an AI? The thing, the good thing about automation is it seems very complex, but it's actually quite simple. The principles of automation go way back even before computers were on this is very very geeky but there's things back in the steam age called governors which used to spin around so the faster they span the little balls flung out and then that would slow it down and that constant you know speed management is essentially what we do today with computers it's you know we need to move something at a certain speed we need to monitor and automatically correct that so that's an incredibly geeky kind of thing um, to talk about <laughs> but what's um interesting with ai is there's been a show i think on broadway i can't remember what it's called but has been criticized for using um ai generated images in their video projections because they're like obviously there's a lot of controversy the same with you know these generated texts it's like where's that come from you know yeah are you using other people's, you know, the input is obviously other artists work, um, other people's, you know, property that's gone into that and you're mm -hmm. generating from that. So they've kind of, especially, you know, your Broadway, you've got a lot of money, you can pay someone to design a background. So there's been a little bit of controversy um, about that. So it's going to be intriguing to see where, where it goes from here. It's, um, you know, across every industry, it feels like, AI is going to be involved somehow um but we just don't we don't know yet yeah. it's um yeah very intriguing isn't it? It, it, it absolutely fascinating to know where that's going to go but I mean we've seen some really significant um shifts in stage technology in the last year or so and I'm thinking of ABBA Voyage um, um in in <laughs> East London where they build an auditorium so that the avatars can perform in it that's one thing. And then, of course, over in Vegas, where a lot of new innovations must generate, we've got the sphere with you 2 playing with this enormous um, uh, 12 times K screen. You were trying uh, to get me interested. Well, yeah, well, no, it's fascinating. <laughs> Envelops the entire <laughs> venue, which is 500 feet high, for goodness sakes, uh, a 19,000 seat venue um, with the band a little down at the bottom yeah that's i mean those things are incredible aren't they i mean the, the way that that is going to change things and indeed if i can extrapolate it even further to 
Hollywood, where, for instance, new Star Wars TV series are on a, uh, they can actually in real time put in scenery because they've got programmers and they could just project it onto, and it's a soundstage where it's a 360 screen all around them. And it creates the light. You know, they don't have to put lights in because the thing projects light onto them. But don't you think there'll always be a place for a stage, two people, and a cardboard tree, like waiting <laughs> for Godot, you know? People will still want to see that without all the amazing technology that makes it look like you're somewhere across the world or whatever, or in space or... <laughs> Yeah, it's intriguing because obviously I remember the first time, because I've got an Apple laptop, I remember the first time the screen got to the point where it's like you can't see the pixels anymore. And yeah. that's what's happened to, you know, these high, these super high resolution screens that we now get to use in entertainment and in theatres. It, it's got to the point where you can't tell it's a screen anymore. Um, I just did Sunset Boulevard, which was the job I did before Hamilton, just um, programming and setting that up. And there wasn't a lot of automation in it. But it was great. I just got to sit back and watch this incredible show. And they use a screen in that and they put live cameras up on it. And it's so high definition. You can see everything. You can see, you know, people's spots. You can see their paws. And it's really, and it's, you know, that really adds something because that's something you've not been able to do in theatre anymore. It gives you all these close ups that you could, there was no, there's no way to do that live really until you had these incredible, um, screens but like you said i think there's always going to be the reason we go to the theater is to share our human experiences really and theater is the oldest form of storytelling there is you know before we had books before we had writing we would tell stories sat around campfires and acting things out so i think it's so woven into us that we're always going to go and want to see someone on stage and have that connection i remember when i was at drama school we did um an opera and the director and was talking to one of the singers and he was like you know why on earth do we do this and he's like it's your job to go out there to perform and bear your soul every night so that we as the audience never have to and that's always stuck with me because mm-hmm. it, it it is that we get to we get to experience this range of you know emotions and the way that you don't isn't the same on tv or on radio perhaps or on film um you get to see it raw and live in front of you and i think that's you know that's something that's important for all of us to kind of witness in a way yeah mm. no i think that's very agree, true yeah and in terms of when you were writing the book uh, did, was that that thought ever in your mind too i mean because uh, in a way, it's uh, you're having to create the set. You're having to create the character voices in the mind of your readers, um, and so you know you're doing the heavy lifting, so they don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> does, does, does that does that play into you as an author? It's um, I can't remember what I was reading the other day. Someone was talking about immersive entertainment. We keep saying, you know. VR goggles and all these things and AR goggles you get to put on, it's immersive entertainment. And I'm like, it's not, it's a trick. And it it's always going to be a trick. But what is immersive is reading a book. Because when you're in a book, you're imagining everything. And someone can come into the room and talk to you and you don't even notice they're there because you're so immersed in the world that you're creating. And I always think as authors, it's your job only ever to 
go halfway really because the book is completed in the mind of the reader and that doesn't happen in any other form of entertainment that's why i think it's so good and people have so many different opinions about characters and what it looks like and when you do do the tv adaptation you know 90 percent of people are unhappy because it doesn't look like what they imagined um because yeah on a on a stage i mean funnily in the theater you get to use your imagination more because it's sometimes just on a bare stage and as an audience you are required to take that step of imagination but on a film or tv show um someone has to make that decision for you um and you get to see what they're imagining but when you read a book it's entirely your own creation as a as a reader it's you know a really close collaboration between author and reader um which is why I always laugh when authors are like, you know, they get a bit defensive about um, what they've written and how people are imagining. It's like, no, that's wrong. That's not what I intended. But it doesn't matter because at this point, once you've written it and given it to someone to read, it's not your book anymore. It's their no. book. Yeah, um, yeah. That, and it's, I always think true. it's really, it's so exciting to listen to what people do imagine the characters like. Um, it's really, yeah, it's really fun. I think that's great as an author to hear what someone else has done you know often they're imagining it much better than i am so i'll take credit for that thank you very much yeah yeah absolutely and um bertie carroll is your main character um he writes uh plays murder mystery plays uh and he's coming back at some point so tell us um, I, think, well, I think robert Dawes would play a very good bertie oh would he yeah i guess he would actually right we'll put you two together um but uh you know in terms of progress of that you, you were saying before we started the interview that you know the theatre work and 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 the, the the day job is getting in the way a little bit of the writing. But what have you got planned? Should you get the time to uh, to get the pen to paper and 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 writing that new manuscript? Well, luckily, I'm now for the past year or so, I've kind of been doing freelance stuff, which means I go in, set up the show, program all the scene changes, and then hand it over. Um, to a team to you know do that show for the run but what that means is you're going into the most intense period that there is in the theatre which is you know fitting up the show in the theatre and also technical rehearsals which are incredibly long you know sometimes they're 12 14 hour days um it's it's a lot of work and then after that I'm completely a there's no time to write and after that I just need to lie down for a month until I've got the energy to do anything again so that's been so that's why I think things have uh been put back a little bit in the last year although I was able to do some writing and it is it is getting together but now I'm on a show full time I'm on Hamilton full time which means apart from the odd matinee day and some rehearsals here and there hopefully for the next year I've got the days free for writing so it's perfect it's the perfect sort of job for that is a bit more stability um so we should be good we should be good to go i mean the book is in a pretty good shape um it's not i've not written the last three chapters yet because i like to go back and sort of do a bit of editing make sure everything's in place and then i can you know really nail the conclusion yeah um so that's where i am at the moment i'm just i've got my ipad out and i'm scribbling loads of notes all over it so hopefully by the end of the year um it will be in a place where there's a first draft ready to go and then i can spend some time polishing it up and hopefully you know either in the middle of next year or by the end of next year there'll be another bertie carroll book ready to go (laughs) so i'm really excited about that and it's just this one's now in london so we're back in sort of 
an area which I know a bit better anyway, and I get to explore some London theatres and London theatre locations. Um, so it's good, and it's also fun to see where these i get to introduce some more new characters which is great and i get to see bertie and hugh's relationship is kind of developing in a you know not necessarily a healthy way a good way it's going to be fun to see where that goes it's going to be a bit of a long rocky road ahead um which i think might frustrate a few people but um it's it's super interesting to see where they go and every time they get involved in another investigation that's changing how the two of them are you know i don't have an end goal yet for where they're going to end up i sort of feel like once we've lived through a few more murder mysteries with them we'll kind of find out where they are going um it's like real life you know yeah you can't can't plan too far out because things are going to happen in between now and then and in fact they 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 have may have an idea of where they're going and they will tell you what as you write it yes yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah it's kind of like and like i said with readers it's like it's fun to hear what they want to happen because at this point in time like i said i don't i haven't done a jk rowling and written the last chapter of book 20 you know <laughs> many years earlier um I've my theories are as good as a reader's theories at this point I just Mm. I don't know and again it's like it's fun to hear without me having kind of any prejudices about what I think is going to happen it's really fun to hear what people say about it so um yeah I'm excited to see where it goes just as much as everyone else we'll have to wait and see we will we will (laughs) well look Jamie um we did warn you before we started the podcast that this would come the moment would come um but here we go you always big it up so much. It really isn't. <laughs> it is time for Rebecca's random question. Right, my random questions tend to come from things that happen to me or conversations I have with the children. Right, and we were in the car the other day, and I decided that everybody has their inner dog breed. Um, so, for example, I decided I was a spaniel, quite excitable, goes around in circles a lot, gets anxious, but just loves life. And Adrian is a, a chocolate lab sort of doleful eyes, uh, very loyal. <laughs> so my question to you is, what is your inner dog breed? Oh, gosh. The thing is, we have a miniature Dachshund, and we love him. Um, and it's, he's the only dog breed I really know a lot about. Um, I'm not, even though we've got a dog, I was never particularly, I don't know a lot about other dogs. So I have to say, I'd have to go with, maybe not a miniature Dachshund, but maybe a full-sized dashend or a corgi i quite like a corgi um (laughs) but it's um it's fun to see him in his little because he's got a lot of personality and he's a little bit he's a little bit snobbish which i'm not snobbish but um i think sometimes i know what i want and if i don't get it i'll just you know also we like we like napping quite a lot the dog likes to nap all day and i'm very happy to nap all day as well (laughs) (laughs) I, i i love Dachshunds because they, they speak German. No, because they're <laughs> these tiny dogs who think they're bigger. Yes, I mean are. he thinks he's huge. It's um, yeah, he doesn't know his own size at all. So maybe I'm not a Dachshund actually, but I do like. Oh, I just like their little faces and their little personalities. Like they do yeah. have so much personality. What's um, he called? Huckleberry. Huckleberry. Are you you've done your research. I've done my research. Huckleberry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. No, no. I mean, the, 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 what I love is when you see a Dachshund interacting with a much bigger dog oh, yeah, yeah. And, and sort of, you know, fearless. 
and just go, you know, <laughs> standing them down. You on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forget yes. that you're a. You might be four times as big as me, but. <laughs> yeah, forget it. You know. <laughs> well, maybe that. I mean, maybe that's the personality I need because sometimes I do think, you know, it's like I'm just an author in the world trying to push my book out there, and sometimes it does feel like. It would be nice to, you know, act a bit bigger and a bit more, not bolshy, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, be a bit more, because it feels like there's this huge world of publishing and there's so many authors. It does feel like, not that you're insignificant, but you're a very small part of this huge thing. And actually, um, a lot of it is if you do just act a bit bigger, you kind of, you should act a bit bigger. You shouldn't put yourself down really and go, oh, I'm just just another author with my mm. book um so maybe yeah maybe a dashan's personality thinking i'm a you bit bigger than i am da- embrace your inner <laughs> dashhound exactly not in an arrogant way of course but no, yeah, no, but i don't think dashhounds are arrogant though are they they just they, they have this sort of i don't know it's not it's not arrogance is no it? so it's, there's it's, a certain they just want to play with everybody and, and think self, with everybody there's a certain self yeah. there which, which yeah and i think we could all, we could all do with you know but any time we could all do a bit more self-confidence, couldn't we? I think. Mm, totally. Definitely. Totally. So Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, where can people find you online? I'm this is Jamie West, pretty much on any kind of social platform. And I've also got a website which could probably do with updating, to be honest, um, which is jamiewest.co.uk. Um, and there's a mailing list on there that you can sign up to, and I will let you know the moment. I know when the next book's going to be out. So that's probably the only function of the mailing list at this point in time. Um, but yeah, I love hearing from readers online. So it's really great to follow and follow back and just chat with um, what's a really, especially in the book world, seems to be quite a positive online community. Um, and like I said, as an author, when you kind of by yourself, it's it's really fun and really important to engage online. So yeah, Please get in touch. This is Jamie West everywhere, I think. Fabulous. Well, uh, we've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating, and we wish you every success with Death on the Pier and the, the future book as well. And the future series. Yes, fingers crossed. It'll go on forever. <laughs> oh, it makes me want to go back to the theatre. And I know ticket prices are going up. I thought you were going to say it makes me want a dog. <laughs> we were too. talking about his cute dashhound. Yeah. Miniature yeah, dashhound. Mini dashhound. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, no, that was fascinating to hear about all those different new aspects of the theatre and the way that live entertainment is going. And it is it is one of the great strengths of this country. Without question, we are amongst the best in the world at any of these creative arts. But it's also reassuring, isn't it, that that sort of very simple format is still live and well and, well, mm. you know, people still pay to go and see the simple format of a stage and some people on it and some yeah but that's that you know the, that format is ancient and but the the fact is that the technology now involved is so sophisticated that there is a blurring isn't it and it was interesting going to see our own robert Dawes on stage in a one-man show where that was almost as m- the minimal amount of technology you could ever imagine really well yeah i mean it was a it was a, i don't it, think there was any technology no, involved, exactly. was it, was, it was a set some lights um one man show and a small crew tiny crew that was traveling with him about three or four people i think it was it was um but I, you see personally i i prefer that to the flashy stuff i do i just like because you're focusing on on the the actors and 
uh, their emotions and what they're conveying. You're not think not thinking. Oh, look at that! It's amazing. Look, there's a flying dragon going across the ceiling. Yeah, or... yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> each, I mean that's true, and there's still tons and tons of opportunity for that. But you know, the fact is that if you want a show that makes money for a long time, you sometimes have to go big. And, and indeed, you know, you can lose a lot of money in the theatre with all these technical, uh, you know, expenses that the people do. A uh, very good example was that um, there was a, a, a musical that was a Spider-Man musical uh, in New York, and it was beset with technical problems. A multi-million dollar investment went into it. The music was by Bono and Edge from U2, and it was the most spectacular flop. It lost tens of millions of dollars. It only lasted on stage I think for initially it was just a few weeks before the technical problems became so bad they had to shut the thing down. A year later it comes back and within three months it had shut. And they completely messed up. It's about the balance, isn't it? It's getting the balance right. And and mm. the most important thing is creating a show that people are going to get something out of. So I, yeah. th- I think... Well, it was such a pleasure to speak to Jamie and um, good luck finding the time to write the book too at some point. But... Uh, Thank you for his company. Who's our guest next week? Our guest next week is a lady called Jackie King, and she's another published author with Zuntold. So um, not crime. <laughs> so we'll see what she has to say next yeah. week. And um, I'm still working on a Zuntold production, Kate Wiseman's Gangster School. I have just been listening to what I thought was my final edit. I found one tiny wee error while I was driving up to see my dad in hospital. And uh, so I have to make a correction, but it's nearly there. That's book one of three that I'm doing for them. And it's been such a laugh to do. It's great fun being a modern Kenneth Williams, (laughs) you know, doing all sorts of weird voices and stuff like that. So it's been great. So I look forward to seeing what they think of it. Yeah, I hope they like it because I'm I'm proud of it. Yeah, that's good. It's a pride before a fall, really. We're publishing a new book this week with one of our new authors. Yes. So the lovely Hilly Barnby's Best Served Cold, just like Blancmange. Yeah. Um, It's coming out on Tuesday. It's a suspense, um, sort of relationship suspense, I suppose you'd call it, set, actually, interestingly enough, in Brighton. Brilliant. Well, she knows it well. And it's 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 a very sort of wintry book because it's it's set at the run up to Christmas. So it's perfect for this time of year. Yeah. So oh, grab fine. a hot chocolate. Yes. <laughs> grab a copy of the book. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll no doubt be having a little chat with Hilly and as part of our programme next week. Yes. Yeah, we need to uh, to work that in. And uh, as far as this week goes, it's birthday week here at uh, Hobeck Towers. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like a mini Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, because two of your boys have their... Um, have their birthdays. So, yeah, so Toby is 14 on Tuesday, hard to believe, but, yes, uh, toes, as I call him, 14 years old. And Luke will be 20 on Thursday, although he'll be back in uh, Leeds at university, but I'm sure we'll have some sort of link-up with him, Absolutely. watch him open his presents. and <laughs> Yeah. He's got to take them all back to Leeds on the train today. In fact, as we sit here, he's probably sat on the train, embarrassed because he's got bags of presents sticking out the top. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have your company again for oh, this you're very welcome. of the well, you're too. Uh, <laughs> but also our listeners, of course. Uh, thank you so much for all your support and your interest. Don't forget, of course, our November sale. Go to our website www.hobeck.net 
for details of that and everything else to do with what we do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's always lovely. And um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. The more, the merrier. So, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to thank you for joining us and wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit